Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. So opens the reprise of one of the underlying themes of our movie of the day that signals the latest segment of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, joined by the film guys. Today we have in person, not via phone line, but right here live sitting with us, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. Back where I belong. <laughs> Welcome back to the Midwest. You do look a little tan, I have to say. Oh, thank you very much. From L.A., storyboard artist to the Coen Brothers, and uh, currently working on a really big shoe out in L.A. Also, George Williman, the film archivist for the Library of Congress. George, you are not looking tan. You're looking nice and pasty like me. <laughs> ah, it's that Midwestern <laughs> feeling. I'm pleased as punch to be here. But you can, you can recognize George by singed eyebrows because he does a presentation where he burns nitrate film, and sometimes... <laughs> burns buildings down oh well it's a sideline you know so he'll have no uh no eyebrows and you know he's been out presenting the trade of what he does we are gathered here together today to celebrate one of the finest movies ever made in american film and gentlemen it certainly is i wholeheartedly agree it is a wonderful film no this pun intended. The, uh, this is the quintessential perfect movie on our list the quintessential perfect movie um this is you know, we don't numerically number things, as we always remind everybody. But boy, I'll tell you, this is one of the better ones. Here. It really right. is. This it's one comes the close cream, to the top. if you will, really, really floating to the top. Let's take a moment to review why it is exactly that these movies find themselves on this vaunted list. The vaunted perfect movie list. Well, they create the world they exist in. These movies that we review. And they wholly sustain that world. And regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment values. And never! And never at any time are they put in any sort of numerical order. Alphabetical, maybe. Numerical, never. They are in scale as perfect. Think about that, if you would. It's not uh, definitely not a competition. It is uh, movies that uh, that this are is as art a for unit. Art's sake. That's right, for art's sake. Let's talk about. Of course, you realize that's the slogan at the bottom of the MGM logo too. Art, art is gratis. it really? It is art for the sake of art. Yeah. But let, that's for another time. For another time, we can talk about logos at the bottom. <laughs> Indeed, I have a lot of questions about those. But let's think about this movie that, uh, in some ways, was never, almost never made. It uh, changed hands for a while. It was tossed around until it found its way to. Legendary director Frank Capra. Well, yeah, this um, this film actually started as a short story by uh, by Philip Van Dorn Stern. He wrote it in the late 30s uh, and said that he uh, the idea came to him while he was shaving one morning. He wrote the story down, uh, started sending it out to all the different uh, publications Time, Liberty, and Saturday Evening Post. Nobody wanted it. Absolutely nobody wanted it. So to as not to have it go to waste, he had it printed up and sent it out as a Christmas card that year. And one of the people he sent the Christmas card to was his agent, who called him up and said, oh, could I, like, you know, shop this around and see if I can sell it to studios? And he's Smelling like, 10%. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, yeah, sure, go ahead, whatever. And, and within two or three months, um, she made a deal at RKO and got him $10,000 uh, option on the on the uh, the pro- property, which then, of course, sat at RKO until the late until after World War II, actually, when uh, Frank Capra bought it. But um, the the interesting thing about it is that in all that time, 
people had been working on it, trying to make it into a movie, trying to write a script for it. And they still have scripts in the Frank Capra archives, the scripts that he bought when he bought the rights to the story. Uh, scripts by Clifford Odets and Dalton Trumbo. And These were major leftist writers in Hollywood, which uh, this is before the HUAC. Uh, right, this is right. This is, this is yeah. This is the Act. This is when we were still friends. Point we still you bring friends, up about yeah. leftists and how the FBI had their eyes on this film. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's HUAC? But I forget. That's the House, House Un-American, Un-American Activities yeah. Committee. Oh, yeah. man. And you know, for years, uh, a lot of scripts were written by communists in Hollywood, and they were very, very American-themed scripts. And that uh, that all got out of hand long before we were born, of course. But. Yeah. Uh, some of that stuff still resonates in Hollywood today. And what George is talking about, about the script going through many, many hands, is still the way it works to this day. Sometimes films can change. Uh, they can change their complexion. They can change their tone, everything. Some scripts have been around for a long time, and uh, there's like uh, um, Confederacy of Dunces, which is a property. It's been around the block at least 20 times in Hollywood. It was a book, and, uh, and somebody's always making it into a movie. But it's the same thing. It, it was like this movie, only this movie got a break. And um, Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, Capra saw the something. got a break. No. Yeah, Capra saw something in this story that really resonated with him, especially after World War II. Because even though it is, a lot of people see it as a very sort of typical, sort of Capra-esque kind of, you know, little guy versus the big guy kind of story, there are some, some striking differences. I think one of the biggest ones that I see is that in his earlier small guy films like Mr. Deeds and Mr. Smith, it's like the small guy, the big guys against him, and the other little guys come up to help him. Whereas in this one, the small guy is first helped by some sort of divine intervention. You know, an angel is sent down to show him the error of his ways and, you know, trying to commit suicide. And and then the little guys come back and help him. So and I think that may have in some ways not endeared this film with the audiences at that time. And plus this was um you know, Frank Capra had a had a particular pattern and of the way he did things in the thirties with Meet John Doe and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And um uh, all these movies had a had his trademark. You so know the triumph. The way he would shoot things and the characters, this was totally Frank Capra. Now after World War Two those audiences weren't as naive as they used to be, and this was very apparent because when this movie came out, it just you know it did okay, but it was not. From then on, Frank Capra's work was a conglomerate, right? Sort of a conglomeration of things. Of things that he had done before. Yeah, in fact, yeah. After you look at his work after, it's like th- this was the the hinge bin that changed yeah. his whole career because afterwards he starts remaking earlier films. Well, once you've made the perfect movie, <laughs> where do you go it. from there? There, there's a lot of people that you could say that of, you know, David Selznick and Gone with the Wind and, and other things. Uh, but, I mean, you look at after after um, It's a Wonderful Life and you got Capra doing um, uh, the, the a remake of Broadway Bill and a remake of um, uh, actually kind of a remake of It Happened One Apple, Night. Apple Annie. And a remake of, you know, yeah, Lady uh, for a Day. Lady for a Day. And then he All just gives up. Columbia Shorts. And he got into this. He made a lot of wonderful movies uh, at Columbia Pictures, which is still, the building is still there. Every time I drive by, I think, yeah, that's where all the Stooges and the uh, Capra pictures were made. But anyway, um, he started, his big hit parade started with It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and uh, Claudette uh, Colbert. Colbert. Mm-hmm. And from then on, he marched right into the 30s and was pretty much the quintessential uh, filmmaker of the 30s and then all the way through World War II he made a couple of movies and you know b- before World War II and then he at, in 1946 he did this movie and from that moment on the Capra chapter was 
over with in movie history. Right. He and he done. thought he was finished. But this just goes to show you, you know, that that nobody, the, the Hollywood industry doesn't say who makes a great movie. The people will eventually, because here this movie is, 60 years later, and, and has, has more been, validity it? than it ever has had. It's completely outgrown and gone beyond anybody's uh, idea of what, what the scale of this picture could do, and it defies everybody's imagination because it's still one of, one of everybody's favorite movies. We're talking about It's a Wonderful Life on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We've got J. Todd Anderson in here, as well as George Willem. And, and although, see, there was a period in the 70s where it fell out of copyright, so we all probably, I mean, just the odds are every living American has seen this movie. But even given that, if you could just quickly, George, give us a, a little scenario, a little painting of the action in this amazing film. Sure, and and the interesting thing about it, the way the film is structured, it has one of the longest expositions of any movie on record. I Does think, that mean set up? Yes. Hey. They, very good. <laughs> um, I mean, the exposition and, of this movie is over an hour. And first, it evolves with with incredible paralysis. It mm-hmm. just evolves with incredible storytelling paralysis. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the characters are so wonderfully built up that you don't even notice that, that the story hasn't really started yet. You're just getting the you know, backstory. The story right. doesn't start until you know Uncle Billy loses the money, and George Bailey, the main character, George Bailey, finds that you know his whole life is just going to fall flat here on Christmas Day because he's lost the money that belongs to the uh, the yeah. people who. And how many times have bank. you said, Uncle Billy, the money's in the newspaper? <laughs> Go ask that mean old man. And you watch the movie a million times. It can change. I know it can. So, and, and basically, the story is that Bailey decides. He's worth more dead than alive. He's going to commit suicide. A, a lower class angel is sent down to show him what his life would be, what what life in Bedford Falls would be like without him. And he realizes how important his life has been, even though it doesn't seem like it. We've always had, he's always had the notion of, of leaving town, getting out. And in fact, right. is set to do that several times before it actually happens. We get to watch him as a kid, dreaming of the big things and dreaming of uh, traveling, exploring and going through the world. Um, and also we get to see him fall in love with and, uh, and, uh, and marry what basically was a kind of childhood sweetheart, childhood sweetheart of hers. Yeah. And it's a sort of an unlikely way that they come together. And it is very powerful. Let's check this out. I'm here. Uh, will you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, do you hear? The chance of a lifetime. He says it's the chance of a lifetime. Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. And there it is, Cinch, the kiss, and now that part in the movie, uh, you know, all great movies have have wonderful moments, and it's pretty hard to pinpoint where these great moments are, but. At this point in this movie, you're hopelessly involved in it, and there's no way you're getting out. 
this is the, like this is what I hear everybody in Hollywood always tells me this is the part that they really like. I mean, from the commercial side of the uh, filmmaking business, I hear people talk about this moment more than anything else. A at least three times in my career, I've heard directors talk about this particular moment. It's not much to it cinematically, you know, but you got to remember everything that's building up to this. And, and this is where the movie just kind of explodes. Oh, it does, you know? too. Well, and an interesting historical side note to that particular scene, the kiss at, after he drops a phone and he kisses Mary, the original kiss was considered much too hot by the Breen office. Is and they actually wrong? either had to reshoot that shot or use a less passionate kiss. There is a picture of the original kiss in this book, which, by the way, if you want to read more about this film, you cannot do better than get uh, the the It's a Wonderful Life book by Janine Basinger. Absolutely astonishing book. It's a little dated now because things have changed. For instance, like the uh, it's no longer in public domain. Somebody found a loophole on the music, and yes. now it's not on television as much as it used to be, which was all the time, and nobody ever got tired of seeing it. But you know, whenever there's money to be made, people figure out where to, you know, tap into the money source. And obviously they found out that, uh, which is astonishing, that they actually found this loophole on the music, you know, in this, this movie that was public domain for so many so years. So many years, yes. But it's and that is the beauty of public domain, folks, that you get to get... <laughs> you get to have movies like this forever. You know, I would love for us to do a show on public domain because there's just a lot of interesting nuances and, and weaving and how that comes in and out. This is why public domain exists. I know. Because of this because movie. You know. Is that right? No, I mean, I'm saying that public domain is... You know, the argument for public domain is within this movie. Yeah. Because this is how this movie became well, our Well, yeah, treasure. because this this movie, aside from, you know, being shown in on television starting in the 50s, um, kind of disappeared for many years, and it wasn't until it became public domain, and about the same time is when home video uh, becomes popular, yeah. and and some of the little producers need some stuff to feed their their uh, machines with, and <laughs> here's this great little film, don't pay a dime for it, put it out. Now some of the early copies of it that are out on VHS are just horrible, yeah, taken from old 16 yeah. millimeters. I remember the first even, the even first laser disc I got was just awful. But even back in the 70s, they were scared it was going to burn itself out because they used it so much on television. Yeah. Now I'm not saying public domain. I'm not saying that's correct, but I'm saying this is one of the arguments for public domain, like hymns in your church and things like that. There is another side to public domain. This movie figures into that very strongly. We're talking about It's a Wonderful Life on 91.3 WYSO. Filmically perfect. We do it on Fridays. And it's funny, public domain, it also in some ways sort of speaks to the very theme of this movie. It's about the public coming together and sharing a common culture and investing in one another instead right. of being proprietary and, uh, and uh, singular and insular. So um, actually, a part of the work that George has done and that he considers to be of no value uh, through the years, you can't believe he can't. George Bailey, Shake that is. George Bailey, not George Williman. <laughs> hey, wait a George minute. George Bailey, our protagonist. <laughs> not George Williman at the nitrate vaults. George Bailey of It's a Wonderful Life, Ever Falls. Yeah. He's just aching to shake this uh, cracker box town and get out into the world. And on one such occasion, when he's about to do so, he finds himself um, defending his father and the great work that he's done. I say. Just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. You're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... 
Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. Hey, where have you heard that voice before? We're going to blow up the world, Chad! <laughs> Simon Bar Sinister, how many other villains were patterned after Mr. Potter? Why, uh, Krabby Appleton. You yeah. call me a twisted old man. And the, the amazing Lionel Barrymore doing yes. this, that amazing He's imitated so many times, so well, many and times. And it was interesting for Barrymore at that time because for two things. One is that he had undergone a really, a really unsuccessful hip surgery that planted him in that wheelchair. So, so that was real. That was quite real, yes. And the other thing was he had... Pretty much at that, the audiences of that day was known as like this lovable doctor in the, was it Dr., um, I want to say Dr. Kildare, but it's not Dr. Kildare. I can't remember now what they are. But Dr. Something. Some, but yeah. uh, he was this lovable doctor character, and now he gets to play this just and He does that forever. Hideous. After this movie, he's, he's, he always plays kind of heavy. So this kind of you know? cast him. Well, and it's interesting, speaking of casting, we might uh, digress just for a moment. Uh, one of the other character actors in here, and this, is, and this film is full of some of the greatest character actors that ever trod the boards in Hollywood. That, the, um, the druggist. Yeah, I was just going to mention, the druggist. H.B. Oh. Warner is the druggist. And H.B. Warner was this great silent film actor and got, like, the plum role of his career. He was chosen to play to play Jesus in in Cecil B. DeMille's King of Kings, which is huge, huge production. And what was the year on that one? 1927. Yeah. A big, big production. And But the only problem was that typecast him for the rest of his career. He couldn't get work. Once you play Jesus, who wants really you to play the, the drunk? And so when, yeah, so when, when Capra tapped him to do Mr. Gower and said he was going to play a drunk, he just ate it up. He said, I will be the the the, the damnedest drunk you've ever seen. Just, just dirty, smelly, rotten drunk. And he plays it to the hill at the scene at the beginning where where george is really young and and he gets the telegram that his son has been killed in the war or not actually killed in the war but dies of influenza is just one of the major heartbreaking scenes in the it film. it is Absolutely it's heartbreaking amazing. and also then when he slaps the boy upside the head and injures his ear that got injured because he was saving his brother from the who was going to then go on to save mm -hmm. the other and this i cried i cried when i watched that honestly just so powerful and so and then when he realizes the boy who he's just slapped and made his ear bleed uh has saved him from delivering in his drunken stupor poison to a child in mm -hmm. the town i wept it was so so well done so powerful and so well played by tell me the actor's name again H.B. Uh, Warner oh just now amazing. if you look real carefully in this movie you'll see at the swimming pool scene you'll see Alfalfa from the little <laughs> Alfalfa Schweitzer he's 
He's one of the instigators. Yes, he's is, the the spurned the spurned bow who Alfalfa uh, the singing guy from uh, right. He never went he's on to much. Movie. Although I happened to he have, died pretty early. Oh, know. did he? Yeah. I was going to say because I happened to watch uh, a White Christmas uh, this time around, and he he appears as the cameo, the picture of the brother of yes. one of the girls. It's sort of like he held, only had cameos, but I I guess now Donna Reed so after this why. movie, she one of her her greatest roles was uh, in the the war picture where she played the heart. Uh, is this before this movie after or after? Oh, I this is fairly say. early for her. Yeah, but after this movie, um, uh, the Burt Lancaster movie, uh, From Here to Eternity. Yes, she was in that, and that was like 1953. Yeah, she yeah. here she was. She started out as this wholesome woman in this, you know, the girl next door. Which still, she's absolutely just glorious looking in this she picture. Is. And then you see her. She it just shows the incredible range she had as a uh, as a actress at that time and then she went on to have her own television show in the 60s the right. donna reed show so this woman had quite a career and then she was also on dallas yeah she just was went on forever she? she played the matriarch you know the barbara bel Geddes, who was another star from the 50s all right and and that this all started she was before what's wonderful life but again as we have said many many times on this show this is probably the movie she will be remembered for right now we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life on Filmically Perfect on 91.3. And um, so much about this film has a sort of universal ring. It has this resonance that uh, absolutely fulfills uh, the rule three, that despite all these changes, think of 60 years. There was, I mean, hardly uh, hardly phones or, or, you know, I mean, much less any of the rest of uh, this amazing cultural revolution that's happening and in the meantime. And it's, it's gained that status through just an, an unorthodox approach. Right, George? It was very dark yeah tell us um, how dark this movie was george has a really really good kind of exposition well on it's interesting that um uh, when rko began advertising this film for the theaters they downplay the darkness of the film it is uh, if you look at the posters it looks like this kind of wacky happy-go-lucky comedy like like mr smith or mr deeds or something like that or you can't take it with you you know it just shows it shows a happy, a you know, goofy small town. Stuart and, and Donna Reed on the front, you know, and he's lifting her up, and it's, everyone, everyone's happy, That's and it's my so joyful. Poster. But it's, <laughs> but the film itself is extremely dark. I mean, you get into especially George's situation in the film, and every turn he is, he is bested by, by life. You know, he wants to go off and do these great things. His father dies, and then the war comes and then this happens and then it happens and finally the money is lost and and he's in total despair and he's going to commit suicide he is ready to jump off the bridge and on commit christmas suicide. eve finding himself yeah. from there on then he sees what it would have been like if he hadn't been there and the scenes in potterville are just horrifying they are you know it becomes this this rundown town of, of, of um, brothels and, 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 and gambling casinos yeah and, and um it's only at the very end does it become a happy film when you know, when you know, the people come together and, and save him from his, his fate, basically. Which is the second time I cried. Let's take a second here and listen to this amazing uh, moment in the movie when he realizes, and by the way, takes credit for losing the $8,000. He doesn't even uh, finger his uncle. Right. To Potter, but he's uh, finding himself completely at a loss and has to go to the hated, loathsome old man, Mr. Potter. Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. 
No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have 8000 You know why? Because they'd run you out of town on a rail. But I tell you what I'm going to do for you, George, since the uh, state examiner is still here. As a stockholder of the building and loan, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. All right, George. Go ahead, go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> yeah, Bill, this is Potter. Why, I ought to... picture's only as good as this villain, man. <laughs> Originally not even in the uh, movie. Uh, I guess Capra put that element in. One more that thing to, yes. to note is that the motion picture blah, blah, blah standards were, for, for example, you couldn't say jerk, and anybody that committed a crime had, had, to, to, be had to be punished. But interestingly... Old Man Potter doesn't get punished in this movie. Well, and, not get his. and I think on that one is like, uh, in, in that case, you know, Potter is the villain, but also I see him, the reason he doesn't get get punished is he's just he's just a means to an end or rather a meanie to the ends uh you know his his taking the money is just the the impetus that gets the story rolling you know so it's it, still it, technically right right he was he committed a crime oh yeah basically, he does he, so. can, he, he gets away with it and capra when asked about that i think capra was his his sort of pat answer was well i just decided to leave him to heaven you know he would eventually <laughs> would get it he and would eventually keep in mind it. folks that how many times is, is anybody going to get away with making a movie where the villain doesn't get what is you know what's doesn't due get to what's him? coming? It to hardly him. ever happens. I can just hear the story conferences. Oh no, this will never do. We have to. How can we punish him? How can we punish him? <laughs> In fact, you know, let's make it slow yeah, and drawn out. It, it never. I mean, this is a, this is kind of a independent filmmaking because this was an independent company that uh, Frank Capra put together and it wasn't very successful. But this was the how things were going to go in the future where independent people started making their own rules. Right. And Frank Capra was way ahead of the game by making sure this villain was not punished in the movie because it was his movie and he made it work that way. And people couldn't see it back then, but look at it 60 years later, it works just fine. Right. Now, the sad thing was, though, at the time, it, it didn't work. Um, Capra kept big scrapbooks of all of his productions, as probably a lot of directors did. And, and this one is, is no different. There's a big scrapbook in his archives at Wesleyan University on It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, and the it Library goes through. Congress doesn't have that? No, no, we don't have those. But, <laughs> um, but you go through, and there's all the clippings and all the different things they did to promote the film and blah, blah, blah. And you get to the Oscars because it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Lead Actor, Best Director, Best Sound, and Best Editing. And it lost. It got shut out, did not win any awards. And. When you get to that point in the It's a Wonderful Life scrapbook in Capra's collection, the book stops. There's not another thing about this film. It was like once he was denied the accolades of his peers. It's that spooky music kind of like yeah. factor yeah. up really good. <laughs> he turned it off. I mean, that was the end for him. And it was which, kind of the end of his uh, it was. sort of visionary directing I think, I think this, the, well. the failure of this film really shook him up huh. because... After, you know, like I said, he continued making films for another 10 years, but none of them are of the caliber of his work up to... And this film, if you read interviews of him in his later days of his life, this film sustained him in his later years because yeah. the work kept coming back. And he, he couldn't figure it out. And, uh, and the letters like the kept pouring in. ultimate compliment to his career. Yeah. Yeah. Starting from uh, It Happened One Night and then 
finishing drilling with this movie, yeah. which which the irony of this film falling into public domain becomes even bigger because here it was, I mean yes it was a f- failure initially, but by the you know by the mid seventies it you know people loved this film and it was becoming much more. And keep in mind when you're watching it, folks, it's uh, ninety five degrees when they're shooting it there, and they made all that snow. Built it it's inside all an ice house or something. Everything they was did win an award for the new method of making snow. Right. Yeah. How about that? Of all things, <laughs> that was that the only one. Yeah. Real. It's the, all uh, artificial. Yeah. The outdoor snow is all kind of a soapy, soapy stuff. But before before we go, one one other person who has really benefited from this film, and it's truly amazing, is Carolyn Grimes, little actress who played Zuzu, the littlest uh, the littlest daughter, has made a second life for herself of going around and talking about this film and signing autographs as Zuzu because she lost all of her money in one of the big um, uh, collapses back in in the early two thousands, and oh. this is the way she has sustained herself by being Zuzu. Good, good on her. You so, know, and, why and, not? And if you read about her personal life, George Bailey's life was a walk in the park compared to hers. Her <laughs> life has been horrible. Oh, wow. But this film has kept her going. It's a wonderful life on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Gentlemen, always a pleasure and a real pleasure to watch this movie again. And I'm telling you what, I would watch it over and over and over. Absolute perfection. It is a good picture. And it's, it's a good is film. Perfection. A good film that goes beyond Christmas. <laughs> Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.